Pollution is a worldwide problem. Chemicals and plastic waste don't respect borders. They travel freely across continents and oceans into some of the most remote corners of the Earth. Those who are most affected by pollution are often those who live in poorer countries, people whose voices are not always heard in international discussions about solving environmental issues, curbing pollution, or eliminating toxic chemicals. Who will speak for those who are most affected? What chance do these people have to change the way giant multinational corporations conduct their business? This is the moral dilemma of our time. This is a responsibility we all share. And this is Green Street. Hello and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientific experts all here to help you understand a bit more of what's going on around you that can impact your health and the health of your family. Today on Green Street, we're going to be speaking about the problem of people in underdeveloped countries, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere, who are often most impacted by the chemicals and plastic that developed countries are putting into the environment, and the fact that their voices are not often heard when it comes to developing solutions and mitigating the problems that this pollution brings. Fortunately, someone is doing something about that, and he'll be our guest here on Green Street, right after Patty and the headlines from the Green Street News Department. What do you got for us today? Well, I think we should first talk about the Supreme Court, which seems okay. to be on a roll. Okay. So first, a conservative struck down New York's requirement for gun owners to prove why they should be allowed to carry guns in public. Mm -hmm. And then they overturned Roe versus Wade, you know, and the constitutional right to an abortion. They not only denied a woman's right to control their own body, but they also ignored the fact that children born to mothers who are denied abortions face a much greater chance of being raised in poverty. Mm. But that's not all the Supreme Court did. No, no, no. So also the, the court has crippled the most important federal weapon available to avoid catastrophic climate change and its associated deaths of tens of thousands of Americans every year. In this one, the court sharply limited the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to slash carbon pollution from power plants. The justice has told EPA that it can set carbon emission standards, but only for individual power plants. It cannot establish national standards for coal-fired power plants under its clean power plan. I don't, I don't really get this. The court doesn't want the EPA reaching into people's lives and telling them what to do. This is not reaching into people's lives. This well, is this is actually going along with the industry that doesn't want to be regulated okay, in well, every single instance. You should have been a lawyer. Should have been arguing the case. This is, I mean, you say that it's overreach, but it's really just letting the industry get away with what they want. Yep. You know, fossil fuel industry has its fingers in every aspect of our life. Absolutely every aspect. All right, what else you got? Okay, so this one is Meat Monopolies Mega Farms How the U.S. Food System Fuels Climate Crisis. Here we go again. Food and the climate crisis are locked in a tangled web of cause and effect. This is a battle between people and profits as an increasingly industrialized system prioritizes low operating costs and high profits. Agriculture contributes less than 1% to GDP in the U.S., yet it's responsible for 11% of the country's greenhouse gas emissions, mm. polluted waterways, and millions of acres of degraded land. So here are the top five issues in food production. One, we eat way too much meat, mm -hmm. and it's destroying the environment. The average American eats about 57 pounds of beef in a year, twice the average of other high-income countries. It's wow. a, that's a wow figure. Yeah. Wow. 
And two, we wildly overproduce food and a lot of it doesn't feed people. Much of the food we produce is to feed animals or to produce fuel for automobiles. Three, industrial agriculture exacerbates the climate crisis. Ever since the Dust Bowl in the 1930s, American farmers have used fertilizers, pesticides, and machinery to squeeze more and more out of the land. That disaster should serve as a warning of what happens when intensive agriculture depletes the soil mm -hmm. such that it can't withstand droughts and storms that are that are causing heavy flooding, yeah. which just takes all the topsoil off. Wow. Okay. Number four, a handful of giant corporations control the food system and they aren't eager to change things. Hmm. Four companies control 85% of the U.S. meat market. Four wow. control 85%. That's almost everything. Another four dominate grains, and from seeds and fertilizer to beer and soda, a shockingly small number of firms maintain a powerful hold on the food industry, determining what and how it is grown, how and where it's cultivated, and what price it sells for. Mm. And the last one, the government subsidizes ecologically destructive farming. The dysfunction in America's food system is essentially codified in law. The Farm Bill, a 300-plus page document dating back to the New Deal, dictates a vast range of policies that keep us locked in this unsustainable system. Yeah, you know, government control over what we grow and how we grow it is not a great idea. And we're, paying, we're still paying people to grow nothing. Yeah. No, organic farmers and small farming operations are pushing back and just saying, you know what? <laughs> yeah. No. Okay, what else okay. you got? Okay, so um, this is a study that I found incredibly interesting because we work so much on plastics right now, but this is um, the detection and characterization of microplastics found in human breast oh, milk. I, I saw this one. Yeah, the widespread use of plastics determines the inevitable human exposure to its byproducts, including microplastics, which enter the human organism mainly by ingestion, inhalation, and dermal contact. Once internalized, microplastics pass across cell membranes and translocate to different body sites, triggering specific cellular mechanisms. Mm. Hence, the potential health impairment caused by the internalization and accumulation of microplastics is of prime concern, as confirmed by numerous studies reporting evident toxic effects in various animal models, marine organisms, and human cell lines. And this is actually about a new pilot study, relatively small study, but mm -hmm. it was a single center observational perspective study on human breast milk samples that were collected from 34 women. And for the first time, microplastic contamination was found in 26 out of the 34 samples. Wow. The detected microparticles were classified according to their shape, their color, their dimensions, and chemical compositions. Microplastic data were statistically analyzed in relation to specific patients' data. In other words, their age, their use of personal care products containing plastic compounds, and consumption of fish, selfish beverages, and food that all came in plastic packaging but no significant relationship was found, suggesting mm. that the ubiquitous microplastic presence makes human exposure inevitable. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah, can't avoid it. Do people have the bandwidth to move into yet another major environmental contamination issue? I'm not sure we have the bandwidth. <sighs> well, we have to. That's what we do. All right, thanks, okay, Patty. you're welcome.
The responsibility for the worldwide pollution of chemicals and plastic is not equally shared by everyone on Earth. It's a relatively small percentage of the world's population that is creating these problems, but it is the whole world that is suffering. Vito Buonsante is an environmental lawyer, technical and policy advisor at IPEN, the International Pollutants Elimination Network. Patty and I had the pleasure of speaking with Vito last week. Here's our interview with Vito Buonsante. I'm an international lawyer by training, and I dreamt of working on the human rights. But what I realized is like how the environment has a major impact on the enjoyment of, of human rights. And, and so that struck me at, that I, working on environment and environmental justice, I could, I could also work on human rights. And that led me through sort of a rabbit hole that brought me into a number of different organizations and working on chemicals, mainly because in one organization where I ended up with, nobody wanted to work on chemicals, like all my... Mm lawyer colleagues thought that it was a boring issue and I, I didn't know much about it and uh, I actually thought it was a particularly interesting issue it's like yeah. hundreds of tens of thousands of chemicals and we don't know enough about them but we need them why did you study law because you thought that that would be the best way to affect change so I was very involved in politics when I was young and so I always wanted to be more of like somebody that wanted to make the world a bit better. I didn't really know how I would do that, but I thought that was was the right way. Like, you know, knowing how laws work, it's the best way of not being tricked by powerful people. And so we have all these laws on the books in, in every country, it seems. How do you think that's working? Well, when it comes to chemicals, it's the most striking part is that laws are not very well designed to protect people. Even Tosca, which came into effect in the US in 1976, it was already the weakest because the industry really managed to capture the decision-making process and to make it very difficult. So a lot of confidentiality. And that is like a core issue when it comes to chemicals like we never know what are the chemicals that we're dealing with we don't know how they're used and there's very too little knowledge about them and and so generally there's few laws that work well around the world to protect people effectively from chemicals and that's why we have like huge problems with chemicals like PFAS that are incredibly persistent and and keep on being substituted by other chemicals where we have recurring uh, problems. And same with flame retardants or, or bisphenols, like we have bisphenol A, bisphenol B, bisphenol C. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just saying, but like there, there's like uh, always this uh, guacamole, uh, guacamole. Uh, guacamole. Like, yeah, guacamole. <laughs> not not yeah. guacamole, guacamole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> me, like, make it, not beef. Making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, you know, yeah. let me just ask you a quick question. I think that chemical regulation has to be done by class of chemicals. We need to regulate entire classes because just what you're saying, it's a whack-a-mole process where, okay, so we're going to we're going to prohibit the use of BPA in baby bottles and sippy cups and whatever for children, but we're going to substitute, you know, BPS or BPF or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the public has so little knowledge about this. They just look at a little label on a, you know, on a bottle that says BPA free and they're like, good, 
you know, I'm doing the right thing. I just wanted to ask you, since you are kind of a global person, I've always thought that those countries that have socialized medicine do a mm. better job at regulating uh, environmental contaminants or pollutants because they have to pay for their sick population. Yeah, I think it is a good perspective and, and it does motivate governments to protect better uh, their populations. But there, there's like this problem with that comes with chemicals and is the fact that many effects that we see for some from many toxic chemicals will happen like after 10, 20, 30 years. Yes. And so although medicine, like the, our healthcare systems are different in uh, different part of the world, our political systems are not. And elections happen mm -hmm. more or less every four to five years, a bit everywhere. And politicians could be reluctant to shut down some uh, economic activities on the basis of gains that will happen after a very long time. And so in a way, there is uh, less of a burden of proof, let's say in Europe, in some European countries, especially, especially in Nordic countries, but there is still, uh, you know, some, a good level of resistance to, you know, shut down economic activities in favor of protecting human health outcomes that will happen very far. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that long latency period, especially for things like cancer or reproductive effects are 10, 20, 30 years down the road. And you have a very difficult time drawing a straight line between an exposure that happened, you know, when you were seven or eight or going through puberty. And when you developed cancer, when you were in your 40s, for regular citizens, they just have no control over this whatsoever. And and the burden is on them to, to prove that, you know, this is dangerous. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. so is this a problem of educating consumers so that they know more about this? Or is this a problem of working with politicians to try to get them to enact stricter legislation or both i'm always a bit reluctant to work on consumers because like i think action should generally be taken by by decision makers and and consumers consumers i i like to think about more about citizens citizens like have a difficult grasp of the sub subtleties of certain mm -hmm. uh, of, of science uh, i mean we we had a, a great example with covid like even if there's no big latency uh it's always very difficult to understand what is the science, what is the controversy and everything. So I, I, I think it's, a, it's, it's about decision makers. So this actually does lead into the, the plastics pollution problem. It's a global problem. It has to do with so many of the, the big issues that we're dealing with, which is fossil fuels, the burning of fossil fuels in production, the uh, chemicals that are used to manufacture plastics. And yeah. then, of course, the use of them, which is an exposure issue, um, yeah. uh, an immediate exposure issue. And then the waste issue, which is what I think they're working on. Or are you working on the entire circular <laughs> picture here? That's, that's actually a great question, because like the way in which it became uh, apparent to the world that plastics were a problem actually started with the framing of marine litter. Like, you know, there's a lot of plastic mm -hmm. coming into, into the sea. You know, we have these five gyres of, of plastics uh, mm -hmm. floating into the oceans. But little by little, 
you know, the understanding of the problem of plastics changed, at least changed with many governments and, and many stakeholders. And more and more, it became apparent that just like dealing with plastic as a waste issue, like let's prevent the plastic from entering the waterways was not enough because there's way too much plastics that is being produced. And so, you know, scientists like, and, and just logic tells us like, turn off the tap before you start to clean up the ocean or before you start to do, you know, you start to invest more money in waste management. And so right now, what was decided at the UN in Nairobi in uh, in February to start a negotiation for a new plastic treaty was to look at the entire life cycle of plastics. What that means is still to be negotiated, but the idea is clearly that the entire life cycles of plastic needs to be looked at. And when we say life cycle, we mean we need to address the production, we need to address the use, and then finally how we, uh, what we do with the plastic at the end of their of its life. But you know, changing the way we make plastics or reducing plastic is uh, something that will be discussed. To which extent it will be actually reduced? Uh, you know, it's part of the fight. It's the fight is starting, and as you said, like you know, that we have the fossil fuel industry that is starting to be alerted to this, and, and surely won't let uh, this battle go uh, that easily. Mm. No, I was because, ask- you know, they're they're looking at this new market. I mean, it, from from what I understand from the reading that I have done. The fossil fuel industry is focusing their attention now on plastics production. They're turning away from burning their fossil fuels and looking at other markets. And plastic is a big market. There's a tremendous yeah. demand worldwide and make a lot of money. Yeah. So it's clear that, you know, if we are to address climate change, we need to stop burning fossil fuels. That's that's something that we... Even. Yeah, it's a given, but, you know... Uh, or, or at least like, you know, with how slow things are moving, it's hope. But let's say, uh, you know, we started to get a bit more serious uh, looking at the c- catastrophe that that is mm. that we have ahead. Then uh, the fossil fuel industry wants to be alive and wants to keep on, you know, on digging and, and uh, you know, the, making you know, money, f- f- making money and, and, and burning or or at least using. Uh, the yeah. products and what do they use the product for like to make chemicals and what uh are plastics plastics are made of chemicals so those chemicals are transformed into plastics or those chemicals are used uh, uh, for other to make other products but uh, indeed like you know that is going to provide them a lifeline uh, in the next few years until they find another way to to survive uh and so uh, the fact that there may be uh, an international treaty or a global treaty that is going to reduce production, it will make them a, uh, a bit nervous. So talk a little bit about the, your organization, IPEN, and you know, just explain to our audience what it is and what it's doing. Yeah. Um, what, what role it's playing. Yeah, so IPEN is, stands for International Pollutants Elimination Network. So it's a network of over 600 public interest organizations in 127 countries. And uh, our work is mainly in the global south, in developing countries, in Asia, Latin America, and uh, in, uh, in Africa. And the idea of IPEN is to support 
uh, these small organization from countries and communities that have little voices uh, and to bring their voices into international processes. And so IPEN was born about 25 years, actually 25 years ago, exactly, when uh, another convention, another international convention on persistent organic pollutants, I'm just going to say what a, a name of one of those chemicals, which is DDT, right. uh, was being negotiated and, and IPEN was created there and brought the voices of all these uh, leaders in uh, that didn't have the means to come to the table and to call for elimination of what were initially 12 uh, substances that were known as the dirty dozens. They were mainly mm-hmm. pesticide, mm-hmm. pesticides, but also some uh, industrial uh, chemicals like PCBs. And that's where it, where it all started. And it was a successful a successful project. And, and it continued later with other international negotiations, including uh, the Minamata Convention, so the Convention on the Elimination of Mercury, and but also you know we keep on being uh, involved in the deliberations of all these conventions because like you know when you once you establish a convention then you need to make it work and so there's like a number of decisions that come out of those of those conventions so for example the stockholm convention has kept on listing chemicals for global eliminations some of them being pfas i actually uh, was in uh, uh, Geneva uh, just last week with uh, many of my colleagues from uh, from many countries, and where another PFAS-like uh, substance was listed for global elimination without exemptions, which is very rare. Mm. And uh, and that was was a successful trip, and we're very happy about it. But the fact that we we keep on listing these substances that are very similar means that, as as we said earlier. Uh, we need a, a class approach to uh, dealing uh, with uh, mm-hmm. with chemicals, and uh, and now we're using this experience uh, for plastics, and and you know plastics is so co- related to chemicals, even if we never think about the fa- fact that plastics are made of chemicals, like the the feedstock to make plastic is essentially chemicals, and the harm that this plastic does to developing countries it's incredible like we see how much waste plastic waste keeps on um, being sent uh, to south america to mexico to to many african countries both in products or you know just plastic bags or mixed waste and it gets there for recycling in theory but that really doesn't that's not really what happens you know just a small percentage of it gets gets recycled but a lot of it gets openly burned and uh, or it just gets into the environment and and it pollutes pollutes us and also pollutes our, our health their health yeah and and we're spreading it around the world a little bit more now that china has refused to accept well at least the plastic waste from from the united states so now they're looking for new markets to to ship our plastic garbage to um, so has that had an impact so that, you know, I mean, what have you discussed that in the in this treaty? You know, that is probably one of the reasons why the discussions of, a, of for a treaty accelerated so much. Okay, you know, when good. when you had one country, China, that accepted 80 to 90 percent of all uh, the plastic waste generated wow. in the rich countries and suddenly they are, well, we're going to stop 
from in the next couple of months to accept all this uh, all these plastics and mm. you know for us it was a business model like you know canada us you know all the european countries the model was like oh we keep on consuming and package anything we want uh you know just like making more and more plastic and we'll just send it to china and they'll mm-hmm. deal with it mm-hmm. and it was a lot of it was not recycled there was a lot of awareness raising campaigns done in china in the years prior there's like a documentary called plastic china that uh, really highlighted how terrible working conditions uh, uh people working in the informal recycling industry were, were were subject to and that really led to 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 this change but as you said patty like uh, what if we have this business model we cannot suddenly keep it all at home and so initially we started to send it to malaysia and then to indonesia and then you know to to many other uh countries in uh in south asia and southeast asia but also uh also in africa and although these countries are uh, severely limiting this trade the pressure that comes from uh, from the incredible amount of waste that we keep on generating leads to a lot of uh illegal waste trade uh, and mm-hmm. a lot of dumping mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that keeps on happening and that's why it's so fundamentally important that we close the tap or mm-hmm. we we learn ourselves to uh do something with this waste like we've we've been living in a world that believes in unicorns where we believe that all the plastic that we were generating all the waste that we were generating we throw it in the bin and magically it would be recycled but right. it's a much much more complicated than that let me just ask you this is there an opportunity to use you know to push the agenda to cut down on plastic because of the health impact that it's having on people people in the third world well this is essentially what's the role of ipen <laughs> yeah yeah that's what uh, i'm thinking what w- what we see ourselves really as a as a global health a public health organization and we try to highlight all you know studies uh, all the new science that is that demonstrates that these plastics and the chemicals that we find in these plastics are having an impact on health and so you know what what we're trying to bring to the table is the fact that you know this is not only about the problem of plastics you know ending up in the bellies of uh, whales or mm-hmm. in the in the bellies of birds and it, which is you know per se a problem. Ca- sure ca- yeah Catra- no, catastrophic, really. Yeah, but yes, it, yes. But, but yeah, uh, but it goes beyond that. It's it's really affecting uh, affecting our lives, and and so many get it. Uh, for many, is like still like you know, it, it's seen as like oh, we need to still look at the science, and so I oh, was very I, w- I was very happy to see at the uh, most recent international meeting, many countries asking for more existing evidence more studies on the impacts that the chemicals in plastics have mm-hmm. on people's health and that mm-hmm. is going to be a game changer because mm-hmm. like which government can afford to recognize the the health arms of plastics and not doing anything about sure it. so it becomes yeah. politically very uh very contentious like just recognizing it and then acting becomes even more difficult but you know the 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 first step is like recognizing that that health problem is uh, is there that that threat to health exists 
You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show, Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today has been Vito Bunsante, environmental lawyer, technical and policy advisor at IPEN, the International Pollutants Elimination Network. You can learn more about IPEN at IPEN.org. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of the show. Until then, please be safe, be well. We'll see you next time. 